God, don't you care? Don't you love these people? Are you not powerful? Can you not do anything? And we think that because somehow, especially in our context, we've been wrongly taught that to follow Christ means your life gets easy. That that your life becomes, if you will, uh, successful. Even though Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. We need to remember that this world is in rebellion against our God, and we as Christians stand in rebellion against their rebellion. And that to follow Jesus is, is to engage them and often suffer because of it. And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, we worship a Messiah who was beaten and tortured and murdered. That is the core of who we are, is that our God was persecuted for us. And then we see throughout Scripture, as soon as the church starts, it receives suffering. One place in particular is in Hebrews chapter 10. I would just like to spend a moment here considering God's word with you from Hebrews 10. We see in verse 32 that Christians suffer. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. And so he says these Christians, they gave their life to Christ. They were enlightened and people saw and responded to the light of the gospel and they they surrendered to Jesus. And in response, as they follow Jesus, as they shine the light of Jesus, the world begins to hate them. He says you have endured a hard struggle with suffering. In fact, he goes on to explain that suffering in verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That, that they are brought in front of a mob as we see happening even today. And, and people will, will throw things at them and hurl their insults upon them and, and, and spit upon them. As they just gather to watch them. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews uses this word in which we get the, the word theater from. And it's almost as if they, they publicly expose these Christians to this suffering and this mocking as a way of of entertaining themselves. Of course, no others are beaten and cut off from their jobs in prison. This is what happens to Christians after they are enlightened, if you will, around this world. The world sees the truth of Christianity and they, they hate it and they receive the suffering just as Christ received the suffering. This is happening in Sudan where Miriam Ibrahim, who's 27 years old, a pregnant woman, is sentenced to death by hanging for refusing to reconvert to Islam. Or as happens in Malaysia, where a Christian convert named Daniel says, Malays who leave Islam basically lose everything. They are refugees in their own country and are treated as outcasts. This is happening with your sister, Asia Bibi, who was arrested in June 2009 after an argument with her Muslim co-workers. Asia was being pressured to convert to Islam, and she defended her faith by saying, our Christ is the true prophet of God. And for this crime, in November of 2010, she was sentenced to death. It was two weeks ago, four years after her arrest, that she was finally able to appeal her sentence, her death sentence, to the Pakistani High Court, the National Court. 
They heard her case with 25 mullahs sitting in the courtroom and another 2,000 mullahs surrounding that courtroom in order to pressure the court. The judges would convene for about an hour and then return denying her appeal of her death sentence. Christians suffer. The suffering is thrust upon them. But secondly, it sometimes comes upon them willingly. Look in verse 33. He says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. So you're partnering with that suffering. That, that you're coming alongside. Uh, the mental picture I have is, is these people being dragged out in front of a, a mob and, and you standing behind and you see your brother there being uh, mocked and ridiculed and, and beaten. And you push your way forward and say, that's my brother. He won't stand alone in this. I am going to stand by his side. And you go and wipe the blood off his brow. They, they, you notice that they, they, they are partners with those who are so treated. In fact, verse 34 tells us how they partnered with them. For you had compassion on those who were in prison. In this day, visiting those in prison was this massive compassionate act. And it was very dangerous as well. We know that, that the church originally would worship in small groups in people's homes, almost like our community groups. And could you imagine if, if one of our community groups, um, the, the authorities came and dragged that community group off into prison and, and they threw them all in prison and the rest of us were left? So let's say that just this part of our church uh, family is dragged off to prison and then we got this part. Well, what do you do? How, how do you respond? I mean, do, do we hide? Do we run away? Do, do we clamp down? And remember, by the way, this isn't 21st century American prison. This is a place of filth and disease. This is a place of stench and death. This is a place where there is no medicine. This is a place where the prisoners are not food, fed because they don't care if you die. In fact, they'd rather prefer you to die because they don't want to house you in that prison forever. And the only way you survive is for people to come and actually bring food to you and bring water to you and bring care to you. And you know what they did? They, they had compassion on those who... Uh, were in prison, perhaps remembering what Jesus said. I was in prison and you came to me. They came to them knowing full well that the authorities are just standing there, aren't they? Waiting for, for other Christians to come. Why are you here? Well, well, that man's my pastor. Well, why don't you join him in prison? Right? This is what they would do. They would put them out as bait and bring other Christians as they came to support them and they would suffer alongside of them. They suffered willingly. So let's pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around this world. That they would be wise, and they would not be ashamed of Christ. That even if it meant that they too would walk into suffering in support of our brothers and sisters. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we want to lift up our family in Christ. As they suffer around this world, we ask for the brothers and sisters who are not suffering, that you would give them wisdom as to when to, to, to expose themselves as Christians and, and when to hide. I don't know how to navigate those issues, but you can help them through that. And we pray, Father, that they would, that they would willingly, if you lead them to support their brothers and sisters who suffer, that they would not be ashamed of the gospel. They would not be ashamed of you. Please do this work in their life, we pray in Christ's name. I'm going to keep preaching, Chris.
Okay, we're going to pray. You can sit up here, brother. We're going to, uh, uh, we're going to pray a couple times during this message. I threw you off. That's good. All right, do you have something to share? All right, I'm going to go. All right. So, so Christians, the Christians suffer. Christians suffer willingly. Number three, Christians suffer. We've heard this over and over again this morning. Christians suffer joyfully, which is just extraordinary, isn't it? Look, look again in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Right? So they joyfully received this suffering. And, and it's, so, so if someone comes and they destroy their property and it's not like this grave resolution. Oh, well, you know, the things that I have aren't supposed to matter anyways. It's not like this determination that they have. They actually joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. You go home after visiting someone in prison and your walls are spray painted. Go home, Christians, or leave the country, Christians. And your windows are broken and your drawers are emptied or maybe even your house is burned to the ground like what's happening in Nigeria where recently 100 church members were murdered and those who survived, 300 families had their homes burned to the ground by Boko Haram. Or maybe it's like we heard in, in Mosul in northern Iraq where almost 100,000 Christians have been driven from their homes by ISIS, leaving behind almost everything they have. Or maybe it's happened in Egypt where the Muslim Brotherhood recently killed 250 Christians. The survivors had their homes and shops looted. Or in Sudan where the government continues to bomb schools and churches and homes in the Nabu region. Or in Kenya where Al-Shabaab routinely kills pastors and Christians and burns their churches to the ground, or the Philippines where the Moro Islamic Front steals harvest and livestock. It's happening everywhere. Everywhere. This is what our brothers and sisters face. They go home and their clothes are gone and their drawers are empty and all their luxuries are gone. Your easy chair is gone. And the nice car in the garage is gone. And all your mementos are gone. Your baby pictures are defaced. And and your great-granddaddy's Bible is burned. And the letter your sweetheart wrote to you decades ago is defamed. And how do they respond? Anger? Rage? Vengeance? Fear? Sadness? The Bible says they responded joyfully. Joyfully. Now, there's only there's really two ways you can respond joyfully to such realities. Number one, you're insane. And number two, you're a Christian, and you believe God is good and in control. They trust God. They trust our God, who said, "Blessed are you when." People revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. They had joy. So I want to pray for them. Let's stop for a moment and let's pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Those right now in prison, those right now going home and everything's gone. That they might have joy that they have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Father, we lift them up to you. We don't know what this is like. We, we don't understand this. We, we receive joy when we get things, not when they're taken from us. 
Please help them. Please help our brothers and sisters not to grow in rage or fear. But they would trust a God who sent His Son to die on a cross for them and raised Him from the dead three days later, that they can respond with joy in their hearts. Please help them produce that through Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. The last thing I want you to see from Hebrews 10 is where they get this joy. How are they able to do this? As I mentioned, we, we rejoice when we get things. Right? They lose things. They share in suffering, and then they have this joy. So how is that possible? Well, just look at the end of verse 34. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Right? So they can suffer the loss of what they have because they know what, what they truly have, that which is better, that which is permanent, cannot be stolen. It cannot be defaced. It cannot be taken from them. And so they can rejoice in the midst of this hardship knowing that, that they have this better possession, this, this abiding possession. It's, it's, they have a treasure that's far greater than security or pain-free living or comforts. In fact, verse 34 tells us they believe two things about it. They believe it's better and they believe it's abiding. They look at this world and say this world's inferior and it's temporary. They look at the world to come and they say that's superior and that's eternal. And this has become so powerful in their life. This is, these words have not just been words on the paper, but, but truth in their heart that empower them. That they might you steal their stuff and burn their house together. They're going to rejoice because this light and momentary affliction is preparing them for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. They will rejoice because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to them. They say with the Apostle Paul, we have nothing, yet we possess everything. They have a better possession. And by the way, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, you know what the better possession is. It's not a thing. It's a person. The book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ presenting him and exalting him. For instance, in chapter 1, we read that Christ is the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He made purification for sins. He sits at the right hand of majesty on high. He is enthroned forever. In chapter 2, we read that Christ destroyed the one who has power over death, the devil, and He made propitiation for sins. In chapter 3, Jesus is the faithful one. In chapter 4, He is the sympathetic high priest. He never sinned. In chapter 5, he offered up loud cries and tears and God heard him. And he is the source of our eternal salvation. In chapter 6, he is the one who has gone before us to make a way. In chapter 7, he lives forever to make intercession for us. In chapter 8, he is the mediator of the better covenant that ensures the forgiveness of our sins. He writes the law upon your heart and he will bring us into God's presence forever and ever. In chapter 9, he obtained for us an eternal redemption. He cleanses our conscience of guilt by the shedding of His blood. And He will come a second time to save those who are waiting for Him. In chapter 10, He makes all His enemies a footstool for His feet. He died once for all to make us perfect for all time. In chapter 11, He is the Word that created the world. In chapter 12, He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. In chapter 13, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever. 
the better and abiding possession is not a thing. It's Christ. It is our Maker. It is our Redeemer. That's what we have, and no man can ever take that from us. can take it from no one who is in Christ. And they are willing to suffer for Him because they have Him. Is this our treasure? Can we learn something from them? What is your treasure, Christian? What, what, is, what is that which is most dear to you? What message do we send to the world of the things we're living for? I look around this world, uh, this country rather, and I, I don't know if you see what I see, but it doesn't, doesn't look good. It just seems this past month we have a, a city in the United States subpoenaing pastors' sermons, and we have a state called Idaho, which is threatening jail time for pastors who will not violate their conscience. And just this last week, six North Carolina judges resigned. They quit their jobs because they were being demanded by their government to sin. We see it happening, don't we? What's your treasure? What do you value? They have a better and abiding one. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And so we're going to end our time now. I want to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters that they would not throw away their confidence, that they would place their faith that they have a better possession. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for what we can learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ We thank you that they in the book of Hebrews and they around this world in the 21st century are trusting, are placing their love and affection and heart upon a better and abiding possession that one day through Christ they will come into Christ's presence and there they shall abide forevermore. So whatever this world brings against them or us, it is, it is just a moment. It is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to us. Help them to trust in that. Help them not to throw away their confidence in Christ. And help us. Help us reorient our hearts onto Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.